uh, we started, you know, at the very beginning, our Sauvignon Blanc had 15% Samuel blended in. That was for the first few vintages and then became 13%, 12%, 11%, 10% and worked its way down. Mm. And with the percentage getting less and less, it freed up Samuel juice that yes. we initially in 2010 bottled, put a cork in it, didn't even put a label on, we just put GD1. And it was house wine. Right. You take it to barbecues and all your wine-making friends are going, what mm. wine's this? And loving it and it's the first wine finished on the table. And you go, hmm. We might have something here. Yeah. Might, yeah. might have to put a label on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my name is David Clark, and welcome to the Exanimo podcast. The overarching goal of this podcast is to tell the stories of South African wine, both new and old. We are interested in where we are today and how we got here. Although there is no hard and fast rules about the content we put up, Mostly, the podcast consists of long-form interviews with key figures in the South African wine industry. We may venture off this track occasionally when we think the content warrants it. Today on the podcast, we have James Downs, farmer, viticulturist, and part owner with his brother Stuart of Dumman Way Farm, which is home of Shannon Vineyards in Elgin. In short, James is a total weapon. His knowledge of the terroir of his farm and of Algon in general is extremely informative and engaging. Combine this with an inquisitive mind, a sharp intellect, a thirst for learning, and a desire to be better at what he does tomorrow than he is today, and the result is one of the most formidable people in the wine industry in South Africa. As you will hear, James's natural conversational style tends to focus on ideas and questions, and this resulted in the chat touching on a wide range of subjects. You can't help but be taken along with his enthusiasm and expertise. Please enjoy my conversation with the informative, engaging and humble James Downs. I'm here with James Downs on Dunman Way Farm, uh, also home of Shannon Vineyards. Hi, James. Hi, David. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Very well. Good, good. Maybe chat to us about Dunman Way and the, uh, and the Downs and how... Uh, how the, the two became together and what's the, the yeah, history? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a chicken and egg scenario in terms of what came first. Obviously, what came first was the farm, Dunman Way Farm. And that was, came about from my dad's hard graft. He was offered a job on Oak Valley, funny enough, in 1965. We just worked out it's like 55 years ago, if that's correct. Um, so he's been in the industry for 55 years, 55 vintages in, and he actually turned that down, job down because it was only paying 10 rand a week. Mm. And he still had to then, um, in the letter, he had to contribute to the larder. So he still had to pay for his board and lodging. And he uh, accepted a second job on a farm called Elgin Orchards, which is a big apple and pear farm, uh, which had links to, to vineyards on another property called Denison, which is on the other side of the valley. So my dad worked for a, a incredibly generous um, family called the Brown family. And there's a James Brown at Hartenberg Wine Estate, um, who's obviously also in the wine industry, for many, many years. And had planted vineyards on Denniston Farms. I'm not entirely sure of the dates, but I think it was the end of the 70s. And those first grapes came in um, early 80s. Uh, but unfortunately, they sold the property before they really got going with that grape production. So there was an introduction to planting vineyards and harvesting grapes. My father also studied viticulture uh, at Elsenburg, so he had that background. But 
for the majority of his life, he was involved in apples and pears, mm-hmm. peaches, um, nectarines, dairy cattle, etc. And in 1997, this property, which was always a subdivision of Elgin Orchards, um, was made available to him to purchase from the Brown family, which he did. And I was overseas in, in Scotland doing marine biology, selected breeding in salmon, and I had been at Aberdeen University. And we had a family meeting on the property. I flew back for it, and I put my hand up to come back and manage the property. That was 19. 97, I came back in 1999, and in 2000, we planted our first vineyards. At that time, Stuart was working for uh, Connoisseur, which was a subsidiary brand of Conchi Toro in Chile. This is Stuart, your brother. Stuart, my, my older brother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I smile, because <laughs> we always asked at trade shows who's, who's older. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. <laughs> So with my bald head, um, I often get accused of being the older, the I, older son, but I'm not. I thought you were going to say something else about, um, after you said he is yeah. <laughs> older. I thought there was going to be something uh, a bit oh, more well. vicious coming. No, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah. Or a bit more intimate, maybe. Yeah. I always like to say at a testing, he's the bit looking older brother, and I always wait for a pause, and I hope somebody would say, oh, but you're not so bad looking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could always gauge how good the testing's going to yeah, be yeah. based on that comment. <laughs> So Flattery yes. generally gets you more places yeah. than not. So, yeah. so Stuart, when he was at Stellenbosch University, was uh, in sales at Aikendal as a, a part-time job. Uh, he worked at Hartenberg under James Brown's guidance, went into um, more wine retail with Oscar Fuchs at the wine warehouse and observatory, hmm. learned Spanish in three months, got a job in Chile, and then he spent numerous years in Chile flying around the world, uh, launching and uh, supporting Connoisseur internationally which gave him great exposure to the international wine industry. Besides drinking lots of beer and single malt whiskey in Scotland, we had a wine society every second Monday, and that was through Oddbins. Every second Monday is a... It's, yeah. It's and frequent. It's, it's frequent, uh, yeah. and every other Monday was single malt whiskey society. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I ended up being chairman of the, the wine society, which was yeah. 80 members um, at a tasting every second Monday, 240 mm. members on the list. We had a queue to get in. Thank goodness I was on the committee, so I was always guaranteed a spot at the tasting. Yeah. And we had so much fun tasting wines from around the world awesome. through Oddbins. It was a real amazing introduction at the top of Scotland where I was introduced to wine. Mm. Um, every, every other Monday was Single Malt Whiskey Society, and my best friend was chairman of that. So you can imagine every, okay. every Tuesday of every week was, it was a slow Tuesday. Mm. Um, but it was a really good introduction. And, and that's where my interest in wine actually originated from. So I came back in 99 and we planted our Mount Bullet vineyard and our Rock and Roller vineyard in the year 2000. Cool. Yeah. Maybe chat to us about Elgin or Crabo or the valley as you call it. I mean, maybe paint a picture for people who haven't been here before. Okay, so the Elgin Valley is, as a crow flies, about 70 kilometers east of Cape Town. Depending on the day of the week when you travel out to the valley, it can take 50 minutes or it can take an hour and a half. So don't come on a late Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And the it's, it's, it's also on the way to um, quite, quite a significant sort of holiday town in Hamas. Yeah, Hamas. So yeah. it, does, it does have a holiday traffic um, problem Com- as well. Yes, it does, especially mm-hmm. on a Sunday afternoon returning back to Cape Town. Yeah. Uh, Elgin has been historically known f- as the breadbasket for the apple and pear production in South Africa. 
uh, which is to the huge benefit to the vineyards in the valley because we actually have all that information to fall back onto in terms of the terroir units, the chore units, the, mm -hmm. the soil types. Um, there's a lot of, everybody talks about terroir and wine grapes, but there's terroir relates to all agricultural products mm -hmm. in terms of your soil types, your microclimates, your macroclimates, et cetera. Yep. So we are, on average, uh, about 250 meters, starting at 250 meters above sea level, a lot of the valleys at about 280 meters above sea level. And then some of the much higher vineyards are at about 450 meters above sea level, depending if you are now, you know, who's the highest, if you're on a ladder on the top of Paul Kluver, top of Oak Valley, or on the top of Iona, it's, I think it's pretty much much of a muchness, but they, mm -hmm. between those three wine estates, they probably have the highest vineyards. The altitude is relevant because for every 100 meters above sea level, you can delay ripening by a week. Okay. So if you are sitting at 300 meters above sea level, you'll be on average as a thumbsuck three weeks behind or later in ripening, later in picking mm -hmm. than somebody who's down at the coast at yep. 50 meters above sea level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important going forward with regards to global warming and how the climate's changing. Yeah, that's also the reason why apples and pears work here that, and not on either side of the valley. Yeah. You, know, you, you come through a uh, strand in Somerset West, there's no apples and pears no. over, over the pass. All of a sudden there's apples and pears everywhere. And then you go through... Uh, River. Yeah, what's, the, what's that pass called going into the other way? The Hulk Pass. Okay, yeah. the Hulk Pass. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's no more apples and pears again. No. So it really is only this little yeah. sort of valley. It's, sort of, it's like, almost like a circular... Surrounded, surrounded by mountains, we mm. are probably the most defined geographic wine region in South Africa. We yeah. don't have a national road dividing us into different wine regions. Yeah, no, so, no straight lines on the map. No straight lines. Yeah. Uh, and it was regarded as, in historic times, an old marsh. So we tend to have two major soil types, Kobokafel Chell and Teb Mountain Sandstone. And funny enough, the Teb Mountain Sandstone you can find predominantly at a certain altitude and also around the outside of the valley. The idea being that it being a marsh and having a water level mark, the water level um, created this uh, erosion of the sandstone. So you actually have pockets of deeper sandstone based on if there was a more beach effect around the perimeter. So okay. Iona, ourselves, Lothian, parts of Oak Valley, Porkluver have access to sandstone, which you can plant certain varieties to. In the middle of the valley, um, and lower slopes tend to be more alluvial um, or higher clay components. Um, thinking of a marsh, the sediment depositing down to your, your, your lower sections of the marsh. The rainfall is also important. We have a very high rainfall compared to other regions. We always tend to, in South Africa, talk about rainfall being a 12-month event. Mm -hmm. Unlike a lot of other wine regions, when they talk about rainfall, they only talk about rainfall during the growing season. So when they talk about rainfall in Bordeaux, they will say, oh, on average, we have 497 millimeters of rain. That's basically from bud burst to leaf drop. Okay. And that's why they don't irrigate. Mm. Because their rainfall during just their growing phase is more than the entire annual rainfall for yeah. a lot of our wine regions. Yeah, okay. And again, that's going to be hugely crucial going forward with regards to global warming. Mm. If you have sufficient irrigation from natural rain, or from artificial irrigation from stored water um, in dams, et cetera, or reservoirs to feed your vines. Because obviously you need a certain amount of moisture, water to produce a certain tonnage per hectare, yep. which is pretty crucial. So we have the benefit of, of natural high rainfall and most of our rain is in the winter months and it pretty much dries up leading up to Christmas. Uh, we always, for some bizarre reason, seem to have some rain between 
Christmas and New Year. Um, there's always a rain during that little holiday, that's, uh, a, a day in, in that holiday that you're always sitting inside because it's raining, which gives you mildew effect. That's also quite no, commonly known as Hermanus sicta, mm. Hermanus disease, because a lot of the guys have holiday houses that are Hermanus, they shoot mm. through to Hermanus for a, you know, Christmas, New Year, it rains and they come back to the vineyards and they've got mildew. Yes. Because they haven't been on the, on the property. Mm. Uh, so our rainfall tends to dry up around about Christmas and then we had this very soft ripening environment uh, due to our uh, black southeaster, uh, which is the clouds coming from the southeasterly direction, which creates this mantle over the valley. And again, this also benefits apples and pears. It's like having a shade cloth over the, over the valley and it just produces a milder, more moderate growing condition so you don't have extremes in your ripening you don't have a, a heat wave of 37 39 degrees celsius and you get sunburn and baked fruit and forced ripening and sugar spikes mm-hmm. um, our ripening tempo very much is in third gear almost like diffuses the sunlight exactly the yeah it just yeah. softens the effect yeah um, so we ripen in third gear um, we get more time on the vine more hang time on the vine which helps with tannin maturation or development in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the grapes uh, the diurnal variation is another very important aspect for Elgin in terms of because of our, our, our altitude mm. and we have the Palmet River running through the valley, all the cold air that's generated up in the mountains is channeled down the watercourse through the valley so we get quite extreme high daytime temperatures and very cold nighttime temperatures even during harvest. Because so I mean, you are cl- quite close to the coast as well so that's a little bit sort of um, Yeah, so we have, we have, we have the benefits of both. Yeah. If, for example, it's a hot day, but it's it's dead still. Mm. And then we have a big diurnal variation swing at night. So at four o'clock the next morning, we can have a temperature drop of over 15 degrees yeah, yeah, yeah. during summer. And anything basically below 18 degrees Celsius, some say 18, some say 22, it depends on what, what, what books you're reading. Mm-hmm. But if you have nighttime temperature, cold nighttime temperatures, your grapes can relax. They don't have to metabolize. Uh, they can rest up. They don't metabolize the acids. So you get a much slower downward trend of your acid consumption over time. So when we do pick our grapes, even though we're picking them sometimes three, four, five, six weeks later than other wine regions, we're still picking with lower pHs and high acids, mm-hmm. even with the extra hang time. Yeah. And that basically just relates to the fact that our vines ripen at say third gear and mm-hmm. not fifth gear. Okay. And then our, our proximity to the ocean, uh, this farm is as the crow flies, 12 kilometers to Gordon's Bay. The HQ of the valley, which is basically Peregrine Farm Store, where everybody gets their morning coffee after dropping their kids off at school, mm. is about 18 kilometers as a crow flies to the ocean. The closest I own is about four and a half, I believe. And I'd, and I'd rough thumb suck, I'd say Port Kluver, Oak Valley must be 24, 25 kilometers, but I mean, I'm starting to be corrected. Yep. Uh, so we do have coastal influence. Yeah. So we can have very calm days with big downward variation. And then we can also have days with the southeaster blows. And we actually have the effect of the cooling of the southeaster coming over the Atlantic Ocean and up into the valley. And that mm. often brings the mantle of cloud at the same time, which again, slows the ripening tempo down. Mm. So we have these lot of benefits that really affect our, our ripening aspect to our, our vineyards. I mean, the, you, you mentioned, you, you call it a valley, but when you're driving through, it seems almost like a, uh, some rolling hills underneath mountains. That's what it feels like when you're driving through. Is that, 
not accurate in terms of the actual geography, or is it just the way the the road goes that that goes through it? Or because it, it seems almost if you didn't have the mountains, it would almost feel a little bit Tuscan in terms of the rolling hills yes. that you go through. Yeah, I think I think you're 100 correct. It has more of a the huge variation in aspects and hillsides has a more Tuscan feel to it. Mm. I think most people, when they picture a valley in their heads, they think of a top and a bottom. Yes. A, you know, the, the top or, end of a valley. Like a V-shape. A V-shape, yeah, yeah. and, and it comes down to the bottom end and you end up down at the sea. Yeah. Um, a classic example being Hilmonado yes. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, our shape's not true to that. So it's more mm. of a, a bowl stroke basin shape up in the mountain. Is this like a vulcan? Mechanic sort of thing, or not really? Well, if you think about it, it was it was a marsh, so you had yeah, okay. water coming in, yeah. a, a pooled like a big pool, yes, okay, and then it spilled over yeah. the edge and went down to Claymont. Yes, okay. So that's why it's more circular in nature, and that's why we have this the circular yeah, rim like a of dam mountain. type of vibe, yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah. Okay, right, yeah. cool. Okay, so I don't, yeah, so just give people context of when you're talking about the farm. Now they know where the farm is, and and the and maybe able to piece together why you've made the decisions you have going, you know, in the in the Yeah, if, the if you look if you look at a topographic map of Elgin, it looks almost circular. Mm. And then if you place Dumanway Farm and and obviously the farm came first with the grass planting the vineyards and then in planting the vineyards we created Shannon Vineyards. So mm. Shannon Vineyards is the we we grow the grapes on the farm mm. and I actually sell the grapes back to myself and my brother. And we Shannon Vineyards that then at a tidy profit I hope. Huge profit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, <laughs> no one from no, no one from Sars listens to this podcast. No. Mate, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then um, yeah, so then obviously there's the wine making side, there's the wine marketing side, mm. uh, and our positioning of of our farm is on the eastern flank of the valley. So like maybe like a nine o'clock or yeah, a, you could say a nine o'clock if you take north south and and nine being west. So yeah. you're on the western side. Closest to Cape Town, but being on the western side, we actually our slopes faced east. Yes. So when I stand at the highest point, the top side of the Mount Bullet Vineyard, as the sun sun rises over the east from the east, it kind of like comes over Port Kluver, and the rays come across the valley and hit the top of the Mount Bullet Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that's almost the first part of the of the valley that gets some sunshine. Mm-hmm. And then you can see that Port Kluver sitting in a bit of a shadow. So we get morning sunlight and morning heat but then there's the complete opposite in the afternoons we get an afternoon shadow coming across the farm first yes whereas the rest of the farms tend to bathe in afternoon sun for longer so that's the big kind of microclimate difference between the west and say the east of of the elgin area cool and so you said you planted the vineyards in 2000 took over the farm in 1997 have i got those dates Pretty much. Um, I, we bought the property in '97. Yeah. Uh, I came back in '99. Okay. My dad had already planted some apples and pears. Yeah, I was going to ask what, yeah. what, what was on the farm when, when he was, purchased it. Yeah, there was apples and pears. Okay. Um, so he, and he uh, he planted more apples and pears at that point, or over the f- those two three years. So it was a subdivision of the main farm, mm-hmm. and some apples had already been planted in 1994. They planted some more in 1997 and some some pears. Okay. And when I came here in 1999, the apple and pear component had actually been fully planted, but it was not bearing. In 2000, we planted vineyard. And so we only really came into full production, I'd say around about 2000. And, uh, and around 2000, the, the oldest apple pears were coming in production. Okay. Pears were just coming in production. And then obviously we had to wait till about 2004 yes. before our first vineyards came into production. So apples and pears like take three or four years to... It's the same as, as vineyard, okay. yeah. yeah and, right. and obviously if you leave... 
if you can leave the fruit off and only start harvesting from year four, it's actually in the interest of, of the orchard or the vine. Oh, really? You okay. get it more established before you start putting okay. pressure on with putting the last year. Too much energy gets yeah. forced into the fruit. Okay, yeah. cool. And so what what, were you, what did you plant in 2000 and what, why we, were you planting we what you We planted uh, the Mount Bullet vineyard. Yeah. Um, so that was Merlot and half a hectare of Pinot Noir. And was this with a view to setting up your own uh, wine company and label? And, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. So we did our original um, feasibility with um, Eamon Archer. He's a, a legend in the wine industry, unfortunately not with us anymore. And we looked at the slopes and the potentials, and obviously then you've got to put in your orders at the nurseries. And originally that entire slope was going to be all Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. and we could only get half a hectare. Oh, right. Okay. And this is, this is the crazy part about it. Is we yeah. then said, okay, well, then if we can't get the whole slope planted to Pinot, what do we do next? And of course, you know, you can use all the science in the world to try and determine what's best to plant where and the rootstock, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in the day, time will tell you if you made the right decision. Mm-hmm. And our next best option from a red wine perspective, because we wanted to plant all our red wine vineyards first. So when we actually launched Shannon, we had some vineyard age creating decent wine mm-hmm. when we actually launched the brand, um, which we did in 2000, end of 2008. So our second option was, was Merlot. And the, the belief being that it was a thin skin variety, it was an east-facing slope. It was more suited to, to Merlot than, say, a Syrah. I think 20 years later, you could probably say a Sunzo. You could justify it a different uh, way. Sir, you know, not Shiraz, but Syrah, because obviously the industry has evolved hugely since 2000. And was there no sort of marketing um, factors taken into account? Sort of like, well, Merlot is, you know, a, a variety that is easier to sell perhaps than Syrah no, at the time? We, we at the time, our main decision-making criteria was what was the best cultivar variety to plant for the for, slope. For that actual yeah. space yeah. In, in the world. Okay, yeah. cool. If, yeah, you, nice if, you, if you can grow the right cultivar on the right slope and produce a five-star wine, mm-hmm. you should have decent access to market. Mm-hmm. And previous to that, had you had much um, to do with vineyards in terms of farming them? Before 2000, mm. besides looking at pictures and books, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Drinking the results. Drinking the results, no. So okay. um, got lots of great advice from, um, uh, this is the, the, the beautiful thing about the wine industry and in this country, mm. and I'm sure in all wine regions, is there's no real competition up until wine sales. I see, yeah, yeah. So in terms of... So your neighbor's your friend up until the, uh, up until market. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. Um, and even, you know, I mean, I'm... And even, you know, there's obviously lots of banter even at wine sales mm. stage, but that's where there is an element of competition and mm. even more so these days where, you know, your wines are scored and everybody has an opinion, mm. be it on social media. And so from a viticultural perspective, back in those days, uh, Peter Fisser on Oak Valley, uh, Rosa Kruger, myself, uh, and a few others spent a lot of time going from different, from vineyard to vineyard looking at different techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, the three of us, I mean, I think Rosa had probably a year or two on me, um, having planted an Elgin. Uh, Peter Fisser also maybe one or two, so I really learned a lot from them. So maybe chat to me about um, the history, or as you understand it, of vineyards in Elgin. And when did Elgin become a WO? Cause so a, as far it's, as it's a relatively new one, isn't it? Like it is, it's one of the newer yeah, ones. Yeah. There were vineyards, as far as I know, in the 20s and 30s. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Oak Valley um, had a cellar, uh, which was then converted to a tract yard, unfortunately, but the building's still there. Mm-hmm. And the, 
It was one of those great bricked buildings, beautiful building. Uh, Iris Crow had a massive big fermentation facility. Mm. And if you look at old farm maps in the valley, there are reference to bush vine vineyards. So be it they were Shinnan or Samuel or Hanapurt or Muscat mm-hmm. or something, there were vineyards in, in, in the valley back in the day. With the onset of the apple and pear industry, of course, they all got pulled. And when did that happen? Sort of post-World War II? Or? Pulled, yeah, okay. very much so. And then, obviously, the likes of the Kluvers, um, Oak Valley, my dad planted Sauvignon Blanc, um, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir and Denison Farms with, um, with Pongratz um, mm-hmm. for baby production initially. Funny enough, one of the original young guns, Neil Ellis, bought those grapes. That was 1985 onwards. Okay. Let's say the 80s. Yep. And then in 2000, Anthony Robin Fulion, Dr. Paul Kluver, and I'm not too sure if Andrew Gunn was in the mix then or not, um, had approached the demarcation board and had applied for Elgin to be registered as a wine ward. Okay, yeah. Because okay. we were ward first. And what was it? What were, you, what were they selling their wine under before that? Western Cape. Just Western Cape, yeah, okay. Yeah. Just a, um, yeah, and I know, for example, when Oak Valley... But there was no sort of Cape South Coast, Overberg sort of... No. Yeah, okay. No. Cape South Coast even came later. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty much got lost in the whole Western Cape yeah. category. And then from 2000 onwards, we could actually put one of Origin Elgin on the back label. Okay. Um, which is one of the greatest things ever, you know, yeah, to yeah, retain yeah. Your, your identity. Absolutely. And as you say, because it is, topographically, it's a an actual area it's not just a, yeah. a, uh, a an administrative ward or yeah. a, you know a, a, a very similar kind of but to a smaller scale terroir unit would be high noon mm. where or known as Kaiman's hut where you drive into that bowl that basin mm-hmm. up in the mountains yes um, and that's a very very promising wine region and they have and it's up to 740 780 meters mm. so again i mean that's even later picking than here yeah um i'm i'm a and it's fairly controversial because obviously depending on where your vineyards are but i'm a firm believer that in uh around the world one of the common denominators in where grand cru vineyards are planted they're planted where they're planted because their grapes ripen naturally and without minimal intervention in terms of manipulation of the vineyard architecture to ripen around the autumn equinox. Mm. And when is that here at the moment? What's that's the... 21st what? of March. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think of the whole of Burgundy, yeah, doesn't matter where you are, Champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, whatever, you go to France, harvest is September. All regions. Everybody's picking at the same time. The Champagne guys maybe a week before, but they're not picking a month and a half before. As far as I'm aware and the research that I've seen, if you take 111 indigenous grape varieties in Italy, mm-hmm. and you go from the boot down south right up into the mountains, when you take that as an example in a South African context, you'd say, oh, right down south they're picking in July, and then up in the mountains they'll be picking end of October, mm-hmm. but normally the whole of Italy is picking in September. Um, there might be a week or two variation, but yeah. most of the wine regions... For the indigenous varieties you're talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. why they are where they are, yeah, from yeah, down yeah. to that south. Sense. Yeah, so yeah. if you think of, 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 of um, France, which is the best, Burgundy is where it is because they pick in the month of September. Mm-hmm. A late harvest would be first week of October. Mm-hmm. It's the same for Bordeaux. Everybody's yeah. picking around about the same time. And why Gamay's in Beaujolais and not Pinot Noir, and why Gamay's not in... Exactly. 
uh, burgundy yeah. proper. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. And, and it's we'll, an interesting, and when interesting picked, concept. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Gamay Beaujolais is, is picked early mm-hmm. as a lifestyle red wine to get onto the market early. It's not mm. picked to the benefit of necessarily the right. No, no, that's, a, that's an absolute yeah. market driven yeah. market driven um, decision. decision. For sure, yeah. yeah. So that, you know, and I'd love somebody to have an opportunity to do a PhD and to get the financial backing, to get all the technology put together, to have a digital map of the Western Cape. And if you said, okay, vineyards of the future, we do this for apples and pears. Mm. We talk about orchards of the future. Mm-hmm. And all the work we're doing now is for the 25 years time mm-hmm. to 50 years time. Yes. All the research that we're doing, varieties, orchard um, technology in terms of architecture, how we prune, how we design the orchard is for 2030 to 2050. So row orientation, all that sort of all stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. We're doing all of that now to prepare mm. us for then. So if you did the same in, in the vine industry, if I had to ask what were my parameters in terms of global warming, I'd say in the South African context, nothing lower than 200 meters below sea level, above sea level. So you start at 200 meters above, preferably at about 300. So you have the softening effect of altitude, you have the delayed effect of altitude, you have at least some downhill variation because of altitude, you have access to cooling breezes because of altitude. Then you say, okay, natural rainfall, first prize, plus minus 500 mils during your growing season, which would be for us bud burst beginning of September to leaf drop mid-April. Uh, and Elgin on this farm, our average for the growing season is 505 millimeters for those few months. Bordeaux is 497. So we have a very similar rainfall pattern to Bordeaux, mm-hmm. very similar to France. Um, if you don't have natural rainfall to give you incremental irrigations from the sky during the, the growing season, you then have to have it artificially through pipes, dams and reservoirs. So mm-hmm. you have to have access to irrigation. And at the same time, pegging your flag, so you would actually ripen towards the latter end of summer, not the beginning of summer. So you're not ripening during heat waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have heat waves here in, in January and beginning of Feb, a lot of our grapes are sitting at 15 balling. So we have a heat wave event and our sugars spike by two balling. Oh gosh, we've gone from 15 to 17. We're not sitting at 25 balling, okay, pulling our hair out because, gosh, do we pick or not to pick? We have a heat wave mm. and it goes from 25 balling to 27 and then we're picking port. So we have that, and that's the benefit of a slow ripening tempo to pick around the equinox. So if you had to take those parameters and plot where those vineyards would be for 2050, um, it'll be interesting to see on what slopes at 300 meters. Well, you have to take all the apples and pears out. Well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I think this is this is that's the, where they're planted. I mean, that's a, that's you just pretty much described. It seems that well, we know apple we, and, we, and maybe cherries as well. I would think. Well, maybe. we know yeah. cherries is a better pear area than Elgin. Yes, it's colder in winter um, on the higher parts of cereals, but it's hotter in summer, and you need mm-hmm. more heat in summer for pears and apples. Um, apples can easily get sunburn. So we know that as global warming takes effect, mm-hmm. Elgin could be, become less apples and more pears. Yes. At the same time, if it, it could actually become more vineyard. And the work that we always talk about, the second wave of planting. We've had our first wave of plantings from 85 till now. Mm-hmm. And we're doing all the groundwork in terms of what works best where as an indicator. We know, for example, where pink ladies do well, you can plant Pinot Noir. 
and you can you can use that information with other varieties as well because they need the same kind of terroir requirements. There are lots of a fair few parallels between absolutely. Yeah. So going forward, we know that this slope works well for Merlot now, but in 25, 30 years time, you might be wanting to do a Syrah, or do we go more Bordeaux varietal style? wines yes or do we start looking more italian varieties i was about to say you actually yeah. just because i mean you can there's, talk there's about so bordeaux in the wine sense but you can't yeah. really talk about bordeaux in a climate sense here yeah obviously rainfall but that's only one yeah. data point yeah so do you think maybe the future is more mediterranean varieties yeah it's a difficult one to say it's it's a question of so from an apple pear perspective it's a case mm. of Yes, you'd have to change the variety to suit the change in climate, or you need to adopt your management practices with the variety to be able to accommodate the change. Mm. So it's a case of, do you try and stay with Pinot Noir on your cooler slopes, but then instead of having a cordon wire 60 or 70 centimeters above the, the ground, you go to a, a table grape trellising system mm-hmm. where you actually use an overhead canopy to protect the thin-skinned grape from the elements. Um, so it's a case of how can you adapt, and obviously, if you have to, every time you have to manipulate the architecture, there's a cost associated to it mm-hmm. as well. And we know from a market perspective, there tends to be, and especially in South Africa, a kind of like a threshold. If you go over a certain price point, you go from being uh, what 92% of the market down to 8% of the market, and I mean that's pegged at about 150 bucks a bottle. Um, all of a sudden. I think it's even less, I think it's 125 round a bottle, yeah, all of a sudden you're only, you're only playing an 8% market share. So the more you have to manipulate the architecture of, of the vineyard or the orchard environment, the, the, there's more cost associated to it. Mm. I mean, you'll see more and more shade netting being put up, be it for berries, flowers, apples, pears, etc. Um, it's becoming more commonplace. So we'll see, it's a difficult one. I mean, there's, there's lots of work being done in warmer regions in South Africa with other varieties. Yes. Because they're already at sort of a crisis at that, point. At that crisis point. Yeah. I think we as, as Elgin have another 20, 25 years mm. of buffer because we cool, we cooler climate. Yeah, and with, uh, with your um, uh, options for, as you say, different pruning techniques and yeah. so you can actually change things in established vineyards a little bit yes. to protect yeah. against that. I'm already my one Merlot clone, MO343, the cordon was at 60 centimeters. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of radiated heat coming off the ground. It's got a slightly more sandstone texture to the soil. So there was a lot of reflective okay. warmth coming off the soil. And I've now gone to Gio, but I've put the wire now at 90 centimeters. So automatically I've lifted the canopy just by 30 centimeters. But with a southeasterly breeze, I've increased that air movement under the canopy substantially. To take that, ra- I want the southeaster to blow that radiated wee heat away yes. from underneath yeah. the, the, the fruit zone. Just again to slow the tempo down. Yeah. You have more control driving a vehicle in third gear at 40 miles per hour mm. than driving a vehicle in fifth gear at 120 miles per hour. Yeah, it's less fun though, isn't it? Yeah. It's less fun. It is less fun. <laughs> um, but I'd like to get to my destination. And sometimes, you know, uh, having a few pit stops and, and getting out of the vehicle and looking at the view makes the journey. 
as opposed to getting there and you know <laughs> instead of taking three hours, you take a half an hour and you've actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. you've missed everything on the way. <laughs> and you've got so. two 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 slash tires and <laughs> exactly and, and speeding fines. <laughs> no, I mean yeah, it's very difficult to cook a roast in you know in five minutes. Um, it does take some time. Quite often yeah. in tastings, I refer to the, the vineyard environment as an oven. And are you cooking in at 240 degrees Celsius, or you're cooking at 100 degrees Celsius? Mm. And also, you know, the variety can either accommodate a high temperature or a low temperature. So a Pinot Noir, you want to cook at 100 because it's thin skin. Yes. It's the same with Merlot, but your thicker skin. You want to simmer it rather than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to do a slow roast kind of scenario. You want you want the flavors to come from the juice and mm -hmm. the pulp around the, the seeds, but then some varieties are thin skin, are thick skinned, mm -hmm. so they can handle a bit more heat. So it's just understanding what you're working with and, and getting that that ripening tempo you know we always talk about oh you know the flavors come out the vineyards etc etc but mm. what does it actually mean what do you have to do in the vineyard to actually get the maximum potential out of the grape what um, proportion is on your farm planet to grapes versus apples and pears and Rough. Do you know what the numbers are roughly, or a percentage? Yeah, I do. Are you know, you know, <laughs> to the hectare, to the yeah. third decimal uh, point. Uh, <laughs> uh, due, due to the current economics <laughs> situation, <It's under> <laughs> uh, our vineyard footprint has decreased, yeah. um, and and rightly so. You know, we because we're a small family premium boutique wine business, yeah, we can't afford to waste time with wine with vineyards that produce three star wines. That's not our game. So we've been very ruthless, and our entire business model was always... Well, it's high input here, isn't it? Like in terms of the, um, what you're putting into that piece of land. It's, it's, it's not insignificant, so it, it needs to have high, high output. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, on this farm we have potential for apples and pears. Mm. So the competition, fruit for fruit, is very high. Let's talk comparative to area. So a hectare of vines... Yeah. Uh, produces on average what sort of ton? Uh, I mean, obviously it varies. To it varies, but if you took, but, I mean, uh, across the across the took a thumbsack for Elgin, mm. a complete thumbsack, ten hectares. It's easy maths. Mm. Ten okay. tons. Ten tons for, okay. per, per for a hectare. hectare. Yeah. Okay, you're thinking Savion Blanc. Yeah. Some guys are getting 16, 18 tons. Yeah. And then some, there's some getting yeah. less. But system. for easy easy maths, ten tons a hectare times nine thousand rand a ton, mm -hmm. ninety thousand rand. And for apples or pears, what are you getting off a hectare? And uh, substantially more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, it's a so bigger, heavier fruit, and it's a bigger you know, tree it, it, and a bigger plant. But it's you know, it's again, it's new apple variety, younger block, orchard of the future. You're getting substantially higher, mm -hmm. four fifty to six hundred. Okay, we're not in the citrus league, and we're not in the berry league. Mm -hmm. Citrus being a few years ago, 900,000 and berries over a million a hectare. Yeah, well, Obviously, but berries, the capital requirement to are you establish talking about, You're talking huge. about rands here? Rands, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. it's huge. <clears throat> Obviously, the cost per hectare is substantially higher with apples compared to vines. Uh, not just establishment, but farming? Or? But farming as well. Yeah, okay. you, know, you can imagine uh, a vine, you printing back to two buds a spur. Mm -hmm. An apple tree, you've got to prune one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and four-year-old, and five-year-old all differently. There's six guys printing or four guys printing an apple tree. Yes. There's one person printing an entire row of vine. Yeah. Okay. So your input costs is substantially more with apples. Okay. So again, profitability, mm -hmm. but even with profitability, if you're getting 90,000 Rand income per hectare for the year, that's not a lot of money. Mm. And from that, you've got to pay wages, chemical costs, except depreciation, D diesel and you know, everything. Stuff and so it's, and take a bit home to feed your family. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, you know, if you, if you, and that's say Sauvignon Blanc, if you take Pinot Noir, and so you're getting five tons a hectare, and you're getting 10,000 rand a ton, mm. that's 50,000 rand a hectare. Um, there are a lot of politicians that earn a lot more than 50,000 rand a month. So we're grafting for 12 months of the year with an entire team with tractors in the weather for 50,000, 60,000 rand. And the guy's earning more than that on a monthly salary. But I mean, Elgin isn't a bulk area, is it? I mean, it is a, uh, I can't imagine there's much bulk wine coming out of no, Elgin grapes. No, no, no. For, the, for, uh, the, for this reason, obviously. No, I think, I think the entire valley has, has hung, hung its hat on the fact that we are premium. Hmm. That I think we'd like to think that we are four star plus. I think that's what everybody aims at. Mm -hmm. Due to the pressure of the apples and pears being a natural competitor for agricultural space, it means you have to aim for that. You can't aim any lower. Mm. And I think the, the fact that we are all farmers that have vineyards in the valley yeah. helps benefit, helps with regards to, to establishing and, and obtaining those objectives. Yeah, and, and that's probably one reason why you see so many uh, farms with brands in Elgin to get that value add of... Yeah. You know, adding value to the to the grapes in terms of turning it into wine yeah. and selling. Obviously, that increases the saleability and the, and the average price per yeah. per ton of grapes if you pull it back. Yeah, um, I think a lot of that, a I mean, lot of people have always asked us, oh, "Why do you sell such a high percentage of your grapes out the valley?" We are a very young wine region. I mean, I've sold grapes to twenty eight different sellers. Sorry, I'm just going to repeat that again. I've sold to twenty eight different sellers. And that's well over 35 different winemakers. Mm. Um, the benefit of that is that I've learned huge amounts, intellectual property benefit from delivering to the different sellers. Mm. When do they pick? Why are they picking when they pick? Mm -hmm. How are we picking? What are we looking for? Um, why does this winemaker want me to do X, Y, and Z with leaf plucking, etc.? Delivering to the seller, how are they receiving the grapes? Are they putting it in, in, in chilling units overnight, bringing down to three degrees Celsius before working the, 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 the bunches? How are they doing the sorting, um, the fermentation approaches, uh, the post-fermentation approaches? How are they interpreting the juice whilst it's fermenting? Uh, what kind of maturation are they going into in terms of oak, um, if oak at all, for how long? Um, so all, all, all that kind of post the delivery of the fruit though how do you how are you getting that information out of them once you know in terms of the, uh, the I, I was always very adamant that um, if I'm delivering grapes to you I'm going to be in your cellar okay that was just part of the I'm going to be yeah I'm yeah. going to be between your feet and nosing yeah. around and yeah. and and you you and this is the lovely part about it is that mm. everybody's very willing to share information so mm. I've had amazing barrel tasting experiences mm. in a lot of cellars in the Western Cape mm. and I've learned my success is purely on the back of everybody being so generous with the information. Yeah. Well, also the consultative um, sort of nature of you also, in terms of that, the curiosity and the... Yeah, yeah. You know, that's obviously in, um, in part of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, having a, a biology stroke agricultural background in terms of what I was majoring in in Scotland and selective breeding, mm. you have that inherent curiosity for what makes that better than the previous etc yeah the selective, always, the selective part is the important. selective aspect of it and, <laughs> yeah. and you know when we planted the, the 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 farm a lot of research into rootstocks mm -hmm. clones the difference in the clones mm -hmm. and in producing the grapes 
especially in the beginning part, where you know, 20 years ago, everybody was infatuated with clones. Mm. And I can remember you know, trade shows, you know, talking pin and wire, this clone, that clone, etc. Nobody's wah, 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 wah. Mm. And when you work with vineyards, you realize during their youth, they're of rare clonal expressive. Mm -hmm. But as they get older, they become very expressive in terms of their own personality. Yeah. So someone described it to me once as um, they're, climb, they're all climbing the same mountain, but just from a different slope. So yes. They end up at the same, more exactly. or less the same yeah. spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing if we take uh, our number 14 Pinot Noir 113 clone, Old Dijon, as an example. It was very clonal expressive to begin with. And then it found its groove. Mm. And now if you taste the wine, you could not tell me and I can't say that it's, it's this clone or that clone. So it's, it's stopped, in your mind, it stopped expressing clonal characteristics yeah. and now expressing maybe more of the, of the terroir, the terroir or, yeah. you know, the climate yeah. or you know, yeah. obviously the, yeah. what and the, I, and the I think that's, represents. That's, <laughs> that's why the French always say, you know, have patience. Uh, some of the top uh, domains only start using vines for their Grand Cru wines when they're mm. 30 years of age. Yeah. Because they want that expression from that patch of dirt to come through, mm. as opposed to it being a young, enthusiastic, clonal expression style, style of wine. Yeah, a bit more sort of immature vines, yeah. Yeah. And you never answered the question about... Which was again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lovely answer, but... <laughs> yeah. Let's go into politics. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, proportions of plantings versus... Oh, yes, you know, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we were at uh, 15 and a half hectares of vineyard. Okay. And we had planted of that 1.7 hectares to Viognier because back in 2003, Viognier was very hot yeah. and Chardonnay was not. Bit of clonakilla. Uh, and uh, Stuart was selling <laughs> container loads of Viognier out of Chile. Mm, yeah. And hey, it's a new best thing. I was selling a shitload of uh, Shiraz Viognier. You can't swear. No, I can. It's my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, in Australia at that time as well, so yeah. maybe it had an influence here also. That yeah. sort of, it was a bit of a, a wave going through. Yeah. Warm climate, um, Shiraz was getting a bit of Viognier treatment to yes. give it that sort of perfume and lightness. And well, 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 funny yeah. enough, we we planted the Viognier, and the Viognier that I harvested, hmm. uh, it went to three winemakers. The one winemaker was buying literally a ton to co-ferment with Shiraz. Okay. The other two were buying for juice for a standalone Viognier. Mm -hmm. And they made remarkable solid wines from it. We just didn't see the wow factor. Mm -hmm. uh, and personally, from a, I always like to connect with the vineyard. And I just didn't feel the love. There was no love <laughs> from the vineyard. Yeah, for me. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was. Didn't have a connection. No, it was too vigorous. It was too easy. Um, mm. It was. Uh, too giving. Too giving. It yeah. was. It, yeah, it just grew like crazy. You like a bit of pain, do you? I like a bit of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it gets boring after a while. Okay. And after harvesting for 10 years, we just had a family chat and said, listen, we're never going to have Viognier in our portfolio. Yeah, right. What, what, then what's it doing on the farm? Yeah, yeah. So, we, so we pulled it. Mm, okay. And I had three hectares of Pinot Noir. And it's amazing how things have evolved. The whole farm, apples, pears, wine grapes, we've basically come back to a three hectare increment per variety. So three hectares of frail pears, three hectares of uh, big bucks, which is um, uh, flash gala, 
three hectares of Braben, three hectares of Merlot for Mount Bullet, three hectares of Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. So we know that we can put a team in, and if we have X amount of time to work that variety, um, eight to 12 people can work three hectares of Merlot in terms of pruning to get it done timelessly. Come back at a later stage, having been through other varieties to do then the suckering at the right time. Mm-hmm. We had six hectares of Pinot. It was three hectares too much. The three hectares that was too much, we realized, okay, let's identify that for MCC, champagne production, South okay. African sparkling wine production. And we picked it for many years for that. And after a while, you realize, listen, if you're never going to make I think champagne. Got, I, I think I've got one of those wines in my portfolio, actually. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah. We know what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I, I sold grapes to amazing houses. Um, Simon Sich. Uh, Lomorance, Graham Beck. I mean, Graham Beck's three and a half, four hours away. Uh, Peter Ferreira used to be there's, here. There's not enough fruit in Robertson for them, apparently. They need to. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, but it's amazing. Again, you, you, a guy like Peter Ferreira, so generous with his information. We mm. used to get invited to uh, grower days in Robertson. And they would have, and this is the attention to detail, they would pull samples from all the vineyards that they source base wine from, and we'd have a base wine tasting. And you'd say, okay, we source from four vineyards in Elgin. Taste these versus the vineyards that we source in the Helderberg, versus Franschuk, versus Rawsonville, or Worcester, or, mm. and we would taste the terroir units in the base wines as a bunch of growers. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that you learn a huge amount about your, your foundation blocks in the vineyard. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's only possible if someone actually has the economy of scale to do that. And, yeah. You know, and obviously the, the aforethought too. And the we sold Pinot Noir to Waterford, the same vineyard for 11 years. In that process, something like Kevin Arnold invites you to Waterford for Pinot tastings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, half the Pinots are Burgundies. Again, nice you, know, you know, and there yeah. you comparing your, your young vineyard to great wines from around the world. That's hugely valuable to myself as a viticulturalist. You sell grapes to Alex Dale of Radfordale. He invites you around to um, 96 Winery Road for a steak. And he's not going to have a beer with his steak. He's going to open up a bottle of Burgundy mm. or two or three or four. And he might even share one with you. Or he, or <laughs> <laughs> he does. No, but, but this is, this is the, the, the kind of like... Um, the background stuff that happens yes. that elevates the enthusiasm for what you do. Yeah. Um, but it also raises the bar. I mean, like the whole rising tide of all boats theory, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was also very fortunate in that my dad, being in agriculture, and when we first planted, obviously we had three years before our first crop. So he said, 2001, go work in Burgundy. 2002, go work in Chimbaronga in Chile. 2003, go work in Napa. Go work in a cellar and receive grapes, mm-hmm. understand the winemaker's language in receiving grapes, yes. understand why they get upset with viticulturists, yes. understand why they get upset when the grapes come in two hours later than schedule, understand why they get upset when grapes arrive at three o'clock in the afternoon and mm. not before lunch. And the knock-on effects and having to then work late, close up the cellar at 11.30 at night to be back again at 6.37 the next morning and yeah. you do that in a, in a, every single day for... Um, you know, in Burgundy, you're lucky because you do it for two and a half, three weeks in terms of receiving grapes. Mm. But in South Africa, you do that, and some sellers are doing it for weeks. Um, so if, you know, if we can pick first thing in the morning to be finished by 8.30, to be delivered in a cellar by 10.30, 11, 
our grapes will be the first to be received mm. in the cellar. Out of the heat of the day as well. Out of the heat of the day. It's usually, but, also, yeah. but also, the first in gets the best attention. Everything's clean, everything's sterile, because yeah. you know the first thing the guy's going to do in the cellar in the morning is they're going to re-clean everything. Um, as opposed to being the fifth or sixth vineyard that's coming in, and the vineyard prior to you has got sour rot, botrytis issues, millibug mm -hmm. issues, etc. And, you know, have they had time to clean the sorting tables in between the batches? Yeah. I don't know. But a little... You might get a hose down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and little things like that make a big difference. Mm. You know, no, has sure. the team been at it for 12 hours? Yeah. Is it hour one or is it hour, hour eight? Exactly. Yeah, or yeah. hour 12, you know, in some yeah. examples. Um, so all those little things make a huge difference mm -hmm. in everything that you do. So get back to my question again. Uh, oh, yeah, apples and pears. <laughs> yeah. the, rest, the rest is apples and pears. So you got Merlot, you got we've got in the, in the ground uh, we've, got, we've got Sauvignon Blanc. We've got Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon. We now have Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Merlot. Okay. Yeah. And more or less three hectares of each, plus uh, minus. Three point two hectares of Sauvignon Blanc, so okay. 0.2 over three, half a hectare of Sem. Okay. We will end up being close to three hectares of Chard. We had six hectares of Pinot, now back to three, and we have three hectares of Merlot. Okay. And apples and pears in total, what are you looking at there? We're now looking at 33 hectares in total. Okay. Yeah. And that's, cool. what, seven hectares of pears and the rest being apples. And in terms of how they're managing the farm, obviously you said that apples and pears have more input costs and more uh, labour hours per hectare. Yeah. Um, do you have teams of the farm workers who specialise on apples and pears, or does yeah. everyone do everything? No. Very much so. So we have Bruce's team, Pumnani's team, Opos team, apples and pears. And we have Charlotte and her team is just vineyard. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's more of a case of Charlotte might have spare time to help out in apples than vice versa. I see. However, at harvest time, mm. what we do is when we harvest grapes, everybody comes together and everybody harvests. And that's how we get the fruit off early. Okay. Because all of a sudden we've got... You know, instead of having eight people harvesting, yeah. we put twenty-four or thirty. No, we put yeah. what uh, up to fifty-six people picking. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. in out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the longest time is actually loading the trucks, mm -hmm. getting the fruit off the farm, and the picking. Yeah. So you have pretty much sixty people working on the farm at any, farm at any one time. At the height of harvest, we have up to seventy-four. Okay. Yeah. And then in the in the doldrums of winter, a can come right down. We're probably sitting now at about 34. Okay. Yeah. Half. Okay. Plus minus. Um, so, and Simeon. Yes. Yeah. Lovely variety. Yeah. I mean, Very you, exciting. You've, you've been one of the, uh, well, Shannon, I should say, has been sort of one of the champions of the variety and, and at, at the top end rather than as, yeah, as it, shooting it as a, as a variety that sort of. It's, it's amazing. Has, it's, it has you, a long history in South Africa. And yeah, you have, you have a portfolio of grapes and. So we always approached everything that we did from a Pinot Noir perspective. We thought, you know, Pinot is going to lead the way. And, okay, we're going to have some Merlot. We will plant half a hectare of Samuel because we'll need it in our Sauvignon Blanc. Over time, what's happened is the Merlot has found its groove in a wine called the Mount Bullet. Mm -hmm. The Pinot is very strong, but it hasn't been as strong as the Merlot. Mm -hmm. um, I think, hopefully, that's still to come. Well, maybe the Pinot Noir, sorry to interrupt, um, the Pinot Noir is part of that South African Pinot Noir improvement, whereas the Mount Bullet is a singular yes, yeah. Shannon wine. Yeah, whereas the, Pinot Noir, the, the Shannon Pinot Noir is uh, part of a group of Pinot Noirs in Elgin and maybe Imlon Arda that have sort of 
been more and more... Um, We've elevated the category. Elevated. Yeah, uh, but the Mount Bull is more of a standalone single wine. Yeah. yeah. And then the Semiol, you know, we planted it, half a hectare, GD1 clone. We're going to need it for when the Sauvignon Blanc's very young because it's from coming off a young vineyard base. We need a bit more mid-palate weight, longevity potential on the wines to make it a bit more complex, a bit more layers. You know, we started, you know, at the very beginning, our Sauvignon Blanc had 15% Semiol blended in. That was for the first few vintages, and then it became 13%, 12%, 11%, 10%, and it worked its way down. Mm. And with the percentage getting less and less, it freed up Samuel juice that yes. we initially in 2010 bottled, put a cork in it, didn't even put a label on, we just put GD1. And it was house wine. Right. You take it to barbecues, and all your wine-making friends are going, what mm. wine's this? Yeah, yeah. And loving it, and it's the first wine finished on the table. And you go, hmm. We might have something here. Might have to put a, la- <laughs> yeah, yeah, to put yeah, a label yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what's exciting about the SEM is that it's high altitude Samuel. It's cool climate Samuel. Um, and it's lovely having a distinction between the kind of like ancient 100 year old plus SEMs coming from Franchuk mm-hmm. as a kind of like a historical benchmark. Very different style to ours. Yes. Ours being cool climate, much lower pH. Uh, some of our finished wines have pHs of like 3.01, um, much higher natural acidities. It's a very different flavor profile. It's a more of a citrus line as opposed to a nutty, almond, honeyed line. How those wines develop over time will have a very different temper to the French stroke warmer regions. And time will tell. Uh, it's for us as growers, very exciting. Very, I wish I had more than half a hectare. When you mentioned, keep mentioning Merlot, well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, it's not just the Mount Bullet now. You've obviously got a wine uh, sort of almost above that in price at least. Yeah, so how, how does that come about? I mean, you, I mean, Mount Bullet has been uh, what is a single vineyard Merlot. So, so it's actually quite. So we actually mm. over the last few years have produced three. Our entry level Merlot, which was produced initially for Woolworths, has been knocking at around 91, 92, 93 points entry level, which is value for money, unbelievable. A lot of people are happy that that's the score for their premium wines. Mm-hmm. Our Mount Bullet has been consistently 95 pointer. What happened was we sold the grapes for many years to Anthony Rupert. Uh, they had Moshaw Roland as the consultant. They approached the vineyard in a certain way. And in 2007, we said, listen, we'd like to keep a ton. And that was 07, 08, 09. And from 2010 onwards, we then used the majority of the grapes, but still sold some of the grapes off for cash flow. And then around about 2000 and let's get this right, about 2014, about four years later, we then decided, listen, we're not going to sell the remaining of the grapes off. We are going to utilize those grapes for a Woolworths wine, which we did. And what we were able to do was identify in the vineyard what is what we regarded as the premium sections of, of the vineyard within the vineyard environment for Mount Bullet. And what we thought was the lesser vineyards we would be able to use for, Mount, for the Woolworths ranch. And then on the back... And so, sorry, just um, in terms of uh, mechanics, how did that... How, did, did you go through the vineyard first and pick... F- yeah, so I for, would, for, for having, one, having worked the vineyard for years, I always yeah. knew that there was a section that, of, say, the 348 clone, yeah. there was a section that either ripened very quickly or yeah. ripened very slowly. Yeah. 
And so you just you just pick certain parts and then they yeah, would end yeah. up. Okay. Um, certain parts that are more uniform year on year. Yeah. Um, you took out like the variables mm -hmm. and you put pull that together. So the Mount Pullet was always a five-way Merlot pick, a wild ferment, separate fermentation, kept the clones different. The the entry level was the leftover parcels, we all stuck into one big ferment. Mm -hmm. So it was a co-ferment of everything. Um, got all the old wood, etc. On the back of that, what we realized as well was that even fermenting the wines individually, the, the single clones, and there are five in the Mount Bullet, there's MO3, 12192, which is Italian origin, mm. uh, 343 and 348, we would ferment separately, put into barrels separately, and then we would do a master blending. But the identity of those clones are then being lost in the, in the master blend of the Mount Bullet. And in 2003, we had a bit of an anomaly where we picked the MO3 really late, after about 80 mils of rain. And Gordon, with his foresight, said, let the grapes just hang for another so week. Gordon Newton Johnson. Johnson, yeah. who's been the genius behind the Merlot fermentation with Nadia. Thank yeah. goodness Gordon fell in love with Nadia because she had been at Quit Constantia <laughs> yeah, right. and she had yeah. worked with Merlot with Bulo Kheba. Yes. And she was the one that said, actually, no, hang on, I'll, I'll look after the Merlot for you. Yeah, yeah. If she wasn't around, I think a pin and wall her house would have said, uh, don't have space for Merlot. Yeah, right. So thank goodness. Would have been just justified away pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank goodness Nadia was, was mm. there. Mm. So the grapes were received. I can remember our very first barrel, proper barrel tasting after 12 months. And at that stage, it was a case of, is this wine not great? We're going to pull out a barrel and bottle. And, and it was nervous times. I mean, Gordon and Nadia went, my brother and I were standing there, and you know, this is our very first barrel tasting with the Merlot, and they were tasting, and they were keeping very quiet. And we were going, oh, shit. <laughs> they don't know how to break it to us. And like, it's shit or something. Gordy like looked it. at us and went, guys, um, this wine needs more time in barrel. It needs more than 18 months, mm. which means they're prepared to sacrifice double the footprint in terms of barrel space and the barrel seller for this Merlot project. And we realized then that we had the support of the winemakers, of Gordon and Nardo, which is crucial. Mm. Have they been on board the whole time? Or? Since day one. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, just it's linked to the office. So this entire afternoon, the office phone has rung once. It's a very busy office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pumping through it. Um, oh, answering calls all the time. So I'll say so. Have, have Gordon and Nadia Newton-Johnson been on board the whole time as your winemakers? The whole time. Okay. They have made every single vintage and of... You, so the first harvest was 08, is that right? Or you launched uh, in 08? So, so our first grapes we picked was 03. Yeah. And... But um, then in terms of the Shannon... The, the vineyards. Labels. No, so the, the I, know the, I know the vineyards were there, but didn't yeah, you say so you sold them off? Yeah, the, so the, we still sold the grapes off. Yeah. And the Mount Bullock grapes, for example, half went to Neil Ellis and to Paul Kluver to begin with. And then it went to different wine wineries and Tony Rupert. And then we started keeping some for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where having sold 28 sellers has been to our benefit. Michel Rollins, his approach as an cons international consultant, what he wanted from the vineyard. Do you agree with, with the guy or not? Because but you, at least you've got that information to, exactly. to decide upon. Yeah. And, and, and um, <laughs> my father's always been quite vocal in you use a consultant to ensure you do the work that you need to do. Mm -hmm. As an owner of a business, if you have to rely on the consultant to get the job actually done and the consultant has to provide the knowledge to get the job done, mm. 
it's easier than as the owner of the business to employ the consultant and drop the manager. The manager actually needs to know what he's doing. And a consultant is only as good as the best farm they consult to. Mm-hmm. Because if you come with great ideas, you actually need somebody on the ground to implement those ideas to make them happen. Yes. And that's where the, where the magic happens, mm-hmm. is in the implementation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that implementation is based on the interpretation of the concept. So you, yeah, know, you have the concept, but then you have to manifest it somehow. And, yeah. and the real world gets, sometimes gets in the way. You know, the, the old saying of what's the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer? It's one week. Because he will interpret the spring differently mm-hmm. in terms of the tempo and when certain things need to be done. And with working with nature, it's all about timing. When are the trees going to flower? When's the pinna mm-hmm. going to flower? Um, how much growth is there at the time? How much suckering do you need to do? How much mm-hmm. leaf removal do you need to do to get certain flavors out of the molar grapes? Do you need to do leaf removal in Sauvignon Blanc or Samuel, et cetera? And it's, it's all these interpretations to, to create the end result. Just, just quickly, yeah. first vintage of Shannon labeled wine. 2007. Okay. Yeah. So our was seven years of age. Okay. And it was very, very small uh, volumes. Yeah. And we just grew it from there. So yeah. basically, we were able to hold back pockets of, or parcels of grapes to pick and to ferment at Newton Johnson. Mm-hmm. Gordy and Nadia would see the grapes ferment. I sit with them and we sign off the master blend of, of every single batch of wine that we've done. I've mm-hmm. sat with them. Um, that in itself has been one of the highlights of my entire interaction with the wine industry, is yes. having the privilege of sitting with Gordon and Nadia. If I have a really bad day on this farm, I know I can phone them up and say, listen, I'm coming for a catch-up. I can go across, have a coffee, and sit with Gordon and Nadia. Pull some corks. <laughs> I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, leave, I leave Newton Johnson feeling like a million bucks. Yeah. And they're beautiful it's, people. No, it's an amazing, yeah. it's amazing, amazing setup. Amazing yeah. family and amazing setup. Cool. And I think the, the, the success of our Merlot has been on the, on the basis of we've approached it like a Pinot Noir. It's a Pinot Noir house fermenting Merlot. Mm-hmm. as opposed to a Cabernet Sauvignon house yes. fermenting Merlot. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a big mind shift yeah, yeah. approach to how you um, uh, receive the grape in no, the No, it's super interesting because, as you say, I mean, Merlot is usually the secondary variety in, yeah. in most of the, where it's grown. Yeah. Mostly, not always, but, yeah. you know, so it's... Uh, and, uh, and, you know, often it comes second to Cab, yes. but it's, it's picked before Cab. So mm-hmm. you have to work your way through Merlot um, to get the grapes off because cab's coming, you yes. have to get it fermented quickly because you have to get everything and, and, and ready cab, for the cab. And, and cab's the main show. And then, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where for us, we pick our pinot and three weeks later, we have to remember to pick the murder. Mm. And by the time it's delivered to the cellar, the pinot's all in barrel. Yeah. There's some uh, Newton Johnson Syrah around, mm. but there's space for the murder. Yeah. And it gets the Rolls Royce attention from Gordon yeah. and Nadia. Yeah, it gets its due uh, yeah. attention. Cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to pull it, pull the plug here, mate. I yep. do apologise, but thank you very much for your uh, for your generous time. I really appreciate it. I think we'll do it again at some point, and we'll work out. What yeah, I don't think I answered anything very specifically. No, that's but, okay. Um, no, I did, yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're I'm very. Uh, you should way. go into politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, James Dennis, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Cheers, Anytime. man.